The following audio is from The Grove Church. To find out more about our church or to check out previous messages, go to our website at grove.church. Well, good morning and welcome to The Grove. You made it. You're here. And if I haven't had the privilege of meeting you before, my name is Ryan. I'm one of the pastors on staff. And I also want to take a moment to say good morning to those tuning in live online. So glad that you are joining us. I missed being with you this morning. Uh, I'm going to do something that's an inside joke that nobody in this room is going to know what it means, but you guys will know what it means. Glad that you're here this morning. Everybody's looking at me like, that was the stupidest thing I've ever seen a pastor do on the stage. It's an inside joke. They'll get it, but you don't. But it's so good to see you here. And I'm stoked as we're continuing in our message series entitled Enemy at Work. And I'm gonna jump straight into it today. So if you have your Bibles with you, I wanna encourage you to take those out. Maybe you got a smartphone uh, or a tablet that you use a Bible app to follow along. I'm gonna have you tune, uh, turn to 1 Corinthians chapter nine. 1 Corinthians chapter nine. And for future reference, I'm foreshadowing what's coming. You're also gonna wanna know where Revelation chapter three is. Uh, but we're gonna start in 1 Corinthians nine. And as you're tuning, uh, turning there, I simply want to uh, give a quick recap in case you're joining us for the first time here in our in-person gathering or maybe you've stumbled upon uh, our online gathering and you're just kind of tuning in. And this series is where we're taking a look at the fact that the devil, our enemy, Satan, is real, right? God is real, Satan is real, right? Heaven is real, hell is real. And we do this because in society, uh, with the new emerging generation, statistics show that we're less and less interested in Western culture with things of faith, both inside and outside the capital C church, Right, uh, uh, just not interested. In fact, um, I don't know if you know this. I was kind of shocked, and I, and I hope it actually, if you haven't heard this, it, it shocks us a little bit if you're a believer uh, here today, is we used to be in what was uh, uh, defined as a postmodern culture, right? The modern era, we were then in a postmodern era. And right now, uh, they're saying uh, that we are living in and have entered into a post-Christian era, Right? By the defining of generations and how many people are interested in faith, go to church, believe in some kind of a higher power, uh, specifically Christianity, we are now not a nation that is a Christian nation. We are in a post-Christian era. And so we're talking, but we don't want to elevate Satan. We don't want to elevate the, uh, uh, and talk about him too much, right? That's one extreme. Maybe you've been a part of a church in the past where, man, there was a devil under every rock and, man, the devil's doing this. And it's, it's almost like we elevated him to, to equal status with God, which could not be further from the truth, right? Um, but it also, we can't go to the other extreme, which is we never talk about and don't realize that he's real and that he is at work. Our enemy is at work in our world and in our lives to distract and deter and to keep us from God's purpose for our life. And as you think about the purpose of our life, it spurs this thought. Like, what is this all about? Like, what is life about? I mean, I'm sitting in a seat here in church on Sunday morning, and, and, and what about work, and what about finances, and what about family, and what about vacations, and money, and stuff, and cars? Like, what's the purpose of all of this, right? It almost brings up that phrase, like, what's the meaning of life, right? Now, you might not wake up, you and I, every, you know, morning and think that phrase, oh, man, what's the meaning of life? And yet we know that we're created in God's image, and so it's part of our DNA in our makeup because it says that in our image, it said in Genesis, we created man, in our likeness. And it's this desire, I mean, where do I fit? What's the purpose of all of this? I wanna start with a great passage that helps set this up, and then we're gonna talk about how the enemy is at work uh, uh, to change our perspective on life. It causes us to live our life according to a different set of rules and, and priorities than we should be. But I had you turn there. It's 1 Corinthians chapter nine, and we're gonna start in verse 24. 
And the great part here is the Apostle Paul is writing to a church much like ours. Yes, it was thousands of years ago. Yes, culturally it was different, but it was a church that was a, a, a movement that was happening after the life and the death and the resurrection of Jesus, just like we are. And Paul's writing to the church at Corinth, and he says this, in this idea of how we should be approaching life. He says, do you not know that in a race all runners run, but only one receives the prize? So run that you may obtain it. He said, every athlete exercises self-control in all things, and they do it to receive a perishable wreath. But we, he's referencing believers, run this race, control our bodies and have self-control. We do it for an imperishable one, right? These athletes train their bodies, right? They eat only certain things, and they do all of this to win a prize that's a trophy. It's a perishable wreath to stand on a podium somewhere in first, second, or third place. But we run the race of life for an imperishable prize that lies ahead in eternity and is also available here on earth. And Paul goes on to say they did... Um, they do it to receive a personal wreath, but we an imperishable one. So I do not run aimlessly, he said. I do not box as one just beating the air, but I discipline my body and keep it under control, lest after preaching to others, I myself should be disqualified. Paul's got a couple of different themes that he's hitting there, but the important one for us today is this idea of how are we running the race of life? How, are we going after it to win the prize, or are we just okay coming in second or third or being middle of the pack or maybe just not being Last, are we just going through the motions? And it brings up again this idea, what's the meaning of life? What's this all about? And if you don't remember anything else from the message today, whether you've been going to church for decades or maybe somebody invited you here or maybe a friend shared it online and you happened to tune in because you saw it on their feed, regardless of where you're at in that process, if you don't remember anything else from today, remember this. I'm gonna do the best I can to explain the meaning of life. What's the purpose? What should be our priority, our goal, and our, and our outlook? And the reality is this. Aaron, Pastor Aaron shared this passage of scripture. It's probably the most well-known scripture uh, by believers and unbelievers alike. It's the same passage of scripture that Tim Tebow wrote underneath his eyes and his eye black in the championship game uh, in college, right? It's John 3, 16. Here's the meaning of life. God loved you so much that he sent his only son, Jesus, to come to earth to pay a price, a debt that was owed because of sin. Remember, when God created everything in Genesis, it was perfect, right? We read in Genesis that it was so perfect that God actually, every afternoon, would walk physically with Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden. He developed and created earth to have relationship with you and I. I already mentioned, he made us in his image and in his likeness. It was relationship. But because of sin that entered with disobedience with Adam and Eve, we're separated from God. And sin has to be paid for. There's a debt that is owed. The Bible says the wages of sin is death. That when you and I sin, we're worthy of death. Not in the fact that you're gonna die instantaneously on earth when you sin, or none of us would be in this room right now. Right, but it's an eternal death that he's talking about. The wages of sin is death. And so he sent Jesus to pay that price that we could never pay for ourselves. And Jesus willingly stepped out of the Godhead. He was fully God, stepped out to become fully man. Right, we know that in the beginning was the word, Jesus. And the word was with God. Jesus was with God. And the word, Jesus, was God. Jesus is God. 
And he was with God even in the beginning in creation. You see that in Genesis. It's the plural term, right? We created man in our image. Let us create, right? There's this verbiage that Jesus stepped out and paid that price for you for, for the debt of sin that you and I owed so that we could be made right. Atonement could happen and we could have a relationship with him again. But here's the key. You ready for the meaning of life? It's not just for heaven someday. Yes, that's a great thing that we can look forward to, but it's not just so that someday we can have eternal life and not go to hell. Remember the image in the Garden of Eden that God walked with Adam and Eve. It's about relationship that you and I could experience God and the kingdom of God now on earth, right? The meaning of life, best way that I could say it in simplest form is us getting to know him, being known by him, and from this moment to the end of our life because that process is an ever step-by-step process until we come face-to-face with him someday of becoming like him. And when there's a transformation that takes place in our hearts, if we're really, this is a genuine thing that we have and we're going through this process, there's some things that are gonna change in our life, right? There's probably some things we should stop doing, right? I'll give you an example, sin, right? The very thing that causes us to have eternal death, Right? There's some things that we need to stop doing. Not all of them overnight. Right? It's a process. Some of you, I know you're shaking your head, you know, nodding and going, yeah, man, I'm, I've been in this for a long time and there's still things that God's working on in me. But it's a process. The other part of it is get to know him, be known by him. Some things we need to stop doing. There's some things we need to start doing. We need some practices in our lives, some habits that we're not doing right now, but we need them. And if we're being changed by him, we would see it. Let me give you an example. Reading our Bible. Spending time in prayer. The meaning of life is to get to know him, be known by him, to have this transformation take place, and then here's the key, to bring as many people into that process that we have relationship with as possible. That's the meaning of life. That's the meaning of life. The meaning of life is not to profit the whole world. The meaning of life is not to profit the whole world. Matthew chapter 16, verse 26, Jesus says, for what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world in the end, he forfeits his soul. It's not how much money we have. The meaning of life is not the area of town that we live in. It's not the type of car that we drive or the house that we own. It's not the power or the fame or the title we have in the workplace or prestige, right? It's, it's not to be a celebrity, which, by the way, our American culture and, and Western culture loves to put these celebrities up on the pedestal. And, man, if they, man, if they say that, then, man, I, I got to follow what they're saying. We love to do this. The meaning of life is not the comfort of life. The American dream is not the meaning or the purpose of life. It's not even that we're a good person or that we're nice. If Paul says, run this race to win the prize, my question is, is how are we running the race? What are we running after? What's the goal? What's our perspective on life? And the enemy is at work to distract us and to deter us and to get us chasing our lives after things that do not lead to the true meaning and satisfaction of knowing him and being known by him. And in the process, being transformed of things to stop and things to do and bringing as many people, our kids, our family members, our coworkers, our neighbors, those that we come into contact with, to get them into the process so that they could find that there's a grace available to them as well. Let me give you an example of how this plays out for you and I. Let me use a topic that maybe all of us could probably refer to, um, the workplace. 
If you're an employee and you go to work, if the thought process or the thought never enters our mind, God, how could you use me in the workplace? If we don't wake up in the morning going, God, if the, if the meaning of life is to know you, be transformed, be changed in the process, and bring other people in, how would you use me today in my workplace? If that thought never comes across our mind, there's a great chance that we're looking to other things as the grading system to whether we're doing things right or not or what the meaning of life is and what our priorities are. And you might say, Ryan, but I can't talk about that in my workplace. I work in a school. I work in a hospital. I work, I work somewhere. They don't allow that to happen. I'm not saying take your Bible and, and beat somebody over the head with it. I'm not saying stand up and preach a message uh, and a sermon right now in, in your workplace like I'm doing. But what I am saying is, if you ask that question, God, how would you use me in my workplace? He will open up opportunities for you to be hope to somebody who needs hope, to be a friend who somebody needs an encouraging word, somebody who says, man, I'm, I'm dealing with this, and I, man, would you pray for me, and you could pray. But if that thought never crosses our mind, my question is, is how are we running the race? Here's another thing. Workplace. If you're the owner of a business and you have maybe employees underneath you or you have an impact in your community, if the question never crosses our mind in the workplace of something that we own is, man, how could I help my employees? How could I uh, show the love of Jesus? How could I impact my community? God, how could I use the resources that you've given me to further the mission of God? If we don't ever think through that lens, then possibly the goal, the prize that we're trying to win is off. And the enemy is at work to keep us from the purpose and the meaning of life, and he works on us to shape and change our perspective on reality and on life. And ultimately, if you're taking notes, this is how he works. This is the topic for today. He does all of this. He's been doing it since before you were born in culture and in society. He's been doing it in, in all the areas of your life since you've been born, family, uh, school systems, politics, uh, culture, society, media, news, all of these things. He's been working subtly and mischievously and cunningly behind the scenes to bring you and I to a place where we have a view on life and reality with his whole specific goal to bring us to a place, and here it is, of complacency. And some of you are thinking, complacency? Ryan, you just set that up so well. And I was thinking, man, it's going to be one of the big sins, like murder. Like, don't murder. Complacency? Like, that doesn't really seem like, like that's that big of a deal. Right? We're always kind of prioritizing things in our lives. Like thoughts and ideals, relationships, um, even uh, events or tasks that we have to do, we're always trying to figure out kind of in a linear fashion, like what is this and how does this work? And so when you hear complacency, you might be thinking, Ryan, like, like complacency, if that's a bad thing, seems like if I compared it to murder would be way up here and complacency would be re way down here, right? If, you, if I was comparing complacency to a life of thievery and dishonesty and extortion, kind of seems like that one would be a little bit stronger or worse, Right, than complacency. And I would argue that complacency is equally or even possibly more dangerous for us, more important to be aware of than the top 10 commandment level sins like murder and stealing and coveting and worshiping other gods. I mean, if you just look at it in a practical sense, of the seven billion-ish people on the planet, a very small percentage of them are murderers, right? At least the ones that we know of. 
right, of all the seven billion people-ish on the planet, I don't even know what the number is these days, a very small percentage of them live lives of crime and extortion and stealing, right? All of us have a little bit of that dishonesty in us, but I mean, a lifestyle is a very small percentage, but there is a very good chance that the majority of us in this world could easily slip into this middle range of complacency, which is very, very dangerous. And it's interesting because we rank sin. Humanity ranks sin, don't we? Right, sin is sin to God. Right, even the smallest sin, like we, again, those level, high level sins, if I can just avoid the big sins and I can do some good things, I'll probably be all right. But it's the little sins that can lead us there as well. I don't know about you, but my Bible tells me, and we talk about the percentages of the different, and again, I'm not advocating murder or thievery, okay, that's not what I'm saying, but, but reality is much more likely that some of us would fit into this. It reminds me of a verse where Jesus says in Matthew 7, 13, wide is the gate that leads to death and destruction and many will pass through it and narrow is the gate that leads to life and very few will find it. And so we come to this place of complacency. Some of us knowingly, some of us unknowingly. Some of us, maybe we were like me when I was in high school in grades, man, I'm gonna do just enough to skate by, Right? My dad used to say that to me all the time, like, Ryan, you could get straight A's if you applied yourself. I see you. You barely ever study. You barely ever do any homework, and you get B's, you know, A minuses. Like, if you really applied yourself, you could get straight A's. For me in that moment of 16, 17, 18, it's like, why? <laughs> like, man, if I can pass and, and go to college and do that stuff, why would I put in that extra work? Some of us unknowingly end up in that realm of complacency, and we don't even realize that we've gotten there. The enemy works on us to change our perspective on life and aims us towards the wrong goal. And we end up living for the wrong things. The enemy is cunning and he works in a subtle way. I just uh, write down Revelation chapter three and I love this. Um, it's gonna be starting in verse 15 if you wanna turn there. But I love scripture because you don't always have to read a whole book of the Bible to find a nugget of truth. Sometimes it's just a verse or just a couple of verses. And this one is so great and just puts such an exclamation point on the idea and the danger that you and I face in this topic of complacency. And this is John, who's been given a vision from God. He's been exiled on the island of Patmos as he's writing this letter. And God is speaking not to John specifically, but to all of us. And it's a book about revelation, about the end times, what's gonna happen in the end. And he says this, and I want you to hear these words. God says, I know your works that you are neither cold nor hot. Would that you were either cold or hot. So because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. For you say I am rich. You say that I prospered. You say I need nothing. But what you don't realize is that you are wretched and you are pitiable and you are poor and you are blind and you are naked. What God is saying is that there's a whole group of you in the end times that I wish that you were either hot and on fire for me and storming the gates of hell or that you were cold and you were walking in the enemy's camp, but most of you are in this lukewarm spot and the danger of that is that you don't even know that you're in the wrong place. You don't even know that you're playing by the wrong set of rules. You're not even aware. You think that everything is fine. You even call on my name, but I don't know you. There is a danger in complacency. 
And the enemy accomplishes this in our life. And he influences us that we're living for the wrong things. We're playing the game by the wrong set of rules. The enemy accomplishes this through the influence we talked about already of our culture and our society. What we see and what we hear. This idea of groupthink. Right, just because the majority of people out there on social media, or this is what the news says, and the majority of people, whatever that hot button topic is that's out there, I stand on this side because that must be right because the masses, the majority of people think that. I don't know about you, but right is right and wrong is wrong. Doesn't matter how many are standing on which side of it. You may find yourself alone standing on what you know is right, and everybody else might be standing on the side calling what's wrong right. That doesn't mean that it's right but we're influenced by this, whether we know it or not. We're influenced by the, the process of comparing ourselves to other people. How am I doing? How am I doing in life? What's the meaning of life? Well, everybody else is doing this, so man, if I, if, if I can fit in, if I can not stand out, and if I can, well, I'm not as bad as that guy is, and I see what they're doing, and I'm not doing that, so I'm okay. Well, she's over here doing this, and man, I would never do that. We compare ourselves to other people. That's not the grading system on how we measure how we're living our life. And what happens is our focus, our rubric, that's a very higher educational term, right? What's the guiding line, the measuring stick? What's the process of evaluation, right, that we look at to, to measure our goodness or our rightness or right standing, right? And the enemy comes in and he twists it into something that it's not. And it's like he gets us to believe and adhere to a counterfeit or fake set of rules as we play this game of life. And here's the reality. I know that life's not a game, but go with me with this analogy. Right? We end up playing this game by the wrong set of rules, which means we're going to end up in the wrong place at the end of it all. My boys uh, are both in uh, Little League, um, and uh, it's fun. My, my son, Cade, who's six, is playing t-ball for the very first time. Anybody ever watched a t-ball game before? You ever gone to a t-ball game before or a Little League game? Dude, I love it because they're just so cute. Uh, Gideon, Pastor Aaron's uh, son is on our team, and uh, Tate, Dana Gibson is actually our coach of our team, uh, and Mike Oliphant helps out. They're a family in our church, Derek Estrada. And I love it because when you're out there and you watch kids play, right, there's a set of rules for t-ball. They're a little bit different than, say, the set of rules for Major League Baseball, right? These are, these are two different things. I mean, technically, base hits, technically, you run the bases, technically, right? But in T-ball, my son Cade is as likely to get a roaring round of applause for picking dandelions or, you know, uh, striking out, you know, oh, you did a great job, buddy, and everybody cheers, right? As he is if he hits a home run, right? It's a different set of rules at that level. In fact, uh, I was asking Coach Dana, I, I texted her this morning because I've heard her say this in practices and in games with the kids. Hey, kids, what's the number one rule of baseball? And they all yell, have fun. Hey, kids, what's the second rule of baseball? Play hard. Kids, what's the third rule of baseball? Be a good sport. And it's perfect for t-ball. But what if a major league player decided to live and tell whether or not they were being successful <laughs> by those set of rules? Right? We laugh at it. Like, it's silly. That person would be foolish. And yet so many of us are playing the game of life by a set of rules that don't make sense for where we're at. And we think we're okay because the majority of people are doing it. Or we're comparing ourselves, I'm not as bad as that. Intention can be great, but we can miss it. Just being in a seat on Sunday doesn't save you. It's about knowing him and having him know you. 
and the process of change that happens and how many people you can bring with you. That's the meaning of life. I love, I'm gonna give you a homework assignment, Matthew 25, verse 31. If you're taking notes, write that down. I'm gonna give you the synopsis today. It's a parable of the sheep and the goats. I don't know if you've read it, if you've heard it. Every time I mention or think about it, all I hear is Keith Green on the piano, like singing the song. You wanna, I'm telling you, go home and read this and, 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 and do it in earnest. Like find a time to steal away just by yourself or with your spouse or with your family and read it. Because this is what's going to happen at the end of time. This is what's going to happen at the end of the race. It's this incredible parable where it says that Jesus is going to divide uh, mankind into two groups, just like a shepherd would separate the sheep from the goats. And at the end of time, at judgment, he's going to look to the sheep and he's going to say, my blessed ones, when I was thirsty, you gave me something to drink. When I was hungry, you came and you fed me. When I was in prison, you came and you visited me. When I was naked, you came and you clothed me. Enter into your eternal rest in heaven. And then it says he'll turn to the goats in the Keith Green song. Listen, actually read it, but also go home and listen to the song. Like Google it, find it. It's, it's pretty awesome. Like the music goes slow and it gets dark, all these minor notes. And it says that he will say to the goats, depart from me, you wicked ones, into eternal fire created for the devil and his angels because I was hungry and I was thirsty and I was in prison and I was naked and you didn't come to me and you didn't, you didn't do that. He'll spit them out of his mouth and reject them. And the sheep respond in their moment and say, God, when did we feed you? I think I'd remember your face. When did I come and visit you in prison? I mean, I must have missed it. How did I not know it was you? And at the end of it, Jesus says to them, whenever you did it to the least of my brethren, you did it to me. Whenever you did it to the least of those in society who the society turns their nose up to, who are the least at the bottom of the pool and they must just not care enough to work hard and so that's why they're on the corner. That's why they're living in the woods somewhere. That's why, he says, but when you did it to the least of these, you did it to me. And then the goats similarly say, Lord, When? The excuses, when did we not, if it was you, I would have done it. When did I, I didn't know you were in prison, I would have come to you. We even called Lord. We even said your name. He says, when you didn't do it to the least of my brethren, you didn't do it unto me. And what I don't want is for us to start living life by these set of rules that we see in society or culture or comparison and miss out and we come to that place and you end up like some of those goats going, I don't understand, God, how did I miss it? I thought I was okay. I wanna read just two short paragraphs out of this book. We've referenced it, referenced it several times in this message series. It's called The Screwtape Letters. If you join us for the first time or tune in online, you're not sure what this is. It's basically a book by C.S. Lewis, credible writer and author. And he writes it through the lens of a senior demon who's mentoring an apprentice young demon. And the sole goal and purpose of a demon is they're assigned a subject, a human being. And their whole goal is the eternal damnation of a human being's soul, that they would not discover the grace that's available, would not go through the transformation of becoming more like Jesus and bringing other people along in the process. 
right? The demon's sole goal is to keep as many people out of heaven as possible. And in this chapter, he's going through and he's actually saying, don't go for the big, audacious, crazy sins. If you go with the crazy stuff like murder and all these things, most people will wake up to the fact that something's not right, but work subtly behind the scenes with the little sins. And this is what he says. He says, you will say that these are very small sins and doubtless, like all young tempters, you are anxious to be able to report spectacular wickedness. But do remember, the only thing that matters is the extent to which you separate the man from the enemy, talking about God. It does not matter how small the sins are, provided they are, that their cumulative effect is to edge the man away from the light and out into the nothing. I love this. Murder is no better than cards if cards will do the trick, referencing gambling. Murder seems way up here in our minds because we, we rank sin. Gambling, probably not as bad. But he says murder is no better than cards if cards will do the trick. Indeed, the safest road to hell is the gradual one, the gentle slope, soft underfoot, without sudden turnings, without milestones, without signposts. A question for all of us to consider this week as an individual, or if you're married as a couple, or if you have a family, to consider this week is, how am I running the race and what prize am I after? What rules am I running this thing of life by? Am I caught up in the busyness? Am I caught up in trying to accumulate stuff and things because somehow that's what seems to get celebrated? by society and culture? Am I comparing myself to other people? That's not the rubric. That's not the grading system that we measure ourselves to. We measure it up to scripture and to truth so that we don't end up in the grouping of goats at the end of time thinking that we're fine, thinking we were doing it the right, right the whole time, even earnestly wanting to, but we were deceived because that's how the enemy works in our lives. Let me pray for you, God. We thank you for your goodness. God, I just simply pray for each one of us. Pray this just wouldn't be another Sunday where we come and we shadow the doors of a church and we sit in a seat because that seems like the right thing to do. It's great to be in church, but God, what really matters is if there's an authentic change that happens within our heart and in our soul. God, we don't want to be people that think, man, I just want to skate by, man. I, I, I love the idea of the get out of hell free card if I put my, and I say yes to Jesus, but then I'll do just enough to get to heaven. If I can still live my life, if I can still be involved in this or in that if, in debauchery or if I can think or believe about these things and I can still have that and still make it to heaven, then I'm good. God, we don't want to live that way. Help remind us about the meaning of life is to know you, be known by you, be transformed alleviating and getting rid of sin and bad habits in our life, starting good habits of getting to know you, spending time with you in prayer daily, reading the scriptures. And then God, the main thing is to bring as many people that we love and have contact with around us into that process that they too could know. Don't let us be deceived. God, we wanna know the true rules. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Thank you for listening to the Grove Church Message Podcast. To keep up to date with us, like us on Facebook, follow us on Instagram, or check us out at our website, grove.church.